Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Did you have a good Christmas? You did? Well, we did in our household. And uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Tom Cook. And I have the privilege of not being your pastor. Uh, I am a retired Navy chaplain, and I am also a retired pastor. And uh, we moved here just a little over a year ago to be with our grandkids. And uh, they're sitting right over there with my family, and it's great uh, to have them here. I trust you had a good Christmas. I have a new Christmas tie uh, that my wife bought me. I thought of all things that my wife was really proud of, she went on to this great story about how proud she was that she bought me this tie. Uh, she was in the store with my daughter shopping, and uh, the thing I don't like to do, and uh, she saw this tie on a mannequin with a red shirt. And um, she wanted to buy the tie, but she didn't know if she needed the shirt, so she texted my son back at the house, does, does Dad have a red shirt? And so he goes into my closet, and he finds the red shirt. Text back, yes, he does have a red shirt. Uh, so they, they wanted to find the tie. It was on the mannequin, so they went all over the store to look for this tie. They could not find it anywhere. It was only on the mannequin. So somehow the two ladies corralled a brand new first day on the job clerk um, to get up on the mannequin, take the tie off the mannequin. And when I put the shirt on and the tie, my wife went, you're not as handsome as that mannequin was. <laughs> Isn't that what you said? Oh, okay. I'm real, it's not. <laughs> Well, how many of you uh, are, you can raise your hands, how many of you uh, are considered by your family to be the family historian? You're the one that's the deposit of all of the, here we go, get some hands over here. How many of you like genealogy, like to look into your, your family's past? I see some hands up. That's great. Uh, Ancestry.com, if, if you watch TV, you know the commercials are on all the time, and, and uh, my family history, my, my, my given name is Cook, it's an English name. We trace our lineage all the way back to England on my dad's side. On my mom's side, we're Armstrongs. My son, Travis, over here, his middle name is Armstrong, Travis Armstrong Cook. And they're from Scotland. Well, about five, six years ago, my wife and I were in Scotland visiting, and, and we went to one of the shops, and I wanted to buy a Armstrong tartan tie. And so I walked in the store, and I'm looking at all the, the tartans there and everything, and I find the Armstrong, and, and the clerk comes up, and he goes, so do you have a Scottish heritage to you? I said, yes. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, my, my grandfather's name was Armstrong. He goes, aye, the sheep stealers. <laughs> sheep stealers. He goes, aye, and he went on to tell the whole story how in the border between Scotland and England, the Armstrong clan were right there, and they would frequently raid into England and steal the sheep and take them back to Scotland. We went to church on Sunday after Sunday church. Uh, they had a time of fellowship in the back, and one of the men walked up to me, and he says, uh, do you have Scottish heritage, do you? He says, yeah, my family name is Armstrong. He goes, aye, the sheep stealers. So I come from a long line of sheep stealers. I didn't have the courage to tell him that I'm a pastor. <laughs> I don't want to steal sheep. Well, if, if you've been watching television, you know the Ancestry.com has had some commercials. And here's a fella that, uh, wait a minute, let me, I got to show you this. I got to show you this. Here we go. We'll try this again here. That's my family. Uh, the one on the right are the Armstrongs. That's my mom standing there in the middle with a little dress on. That's uh, great-granny Smith over there on the donkey. 
Uh, we're all from the south in that area. And uh, if you've been watching television, you know that, well, here's a commercial of someone you know really well talking about his ancestry. This year, the elves got me a gift membership to Ancestry.com. You'll never guess what I found out. My great-great-grandmother is the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, how do you like that? I give toys to kids, and she gives dollars for leftover body parts. That, uh, that's not weird. That's not weird. Give someone an Ancestry.com gift membership and help them discover their family story. This holiday season, give the gift of family. <laughs> the title of a message today is, What's a Nice God Like You Doing in a Place Like This? And you're going to find, as we go through this uh, message today, that uh, I hope you're challenged by the ancestry that we have together in the person of Jesus Christ. Somehow, knowing something about your family history gives you meaning, whether it's from a sheep stealers or not. <laughs> Somehow, knowing something about your background, and this was especially true to the Jews that lived thousands of years ago, to the Jewish community, it was extremely important to know who your ancestors were. And that's why Matthew, the book of Matthew, starts out with the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And so my text today, I'm going to preach a sermon from the genealogy of Jesus. And so we're going to go through Matthew 1. We're going to read the entire genealogy, or at least I am, the entire genealogy of Jesus. So here we go. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now I've highlighted that because we're going to come back and we're going to talk about these specific people. Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been, past tense, had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Most of us would say, what a boring way to start a book. All those long begats. 
Doesn't Matthew know that the way to hook a reader, to get a reader involved in, in what they're writing about, is you've got to get them up front, you've got to hook them up front. Instead, he gives you these long, dreary begats. Doesn't he know that the genealogies are probably the most skipped passage of the Bible? But it was only natural for Matthew, a Jew, to begin with a record of the genealogy of Jesus. It was as if he was saying, check this fellow's pedigree out. Let's shake the family tree and let's see what falls out. You see, to be a priest, a Levite in the Old Testament, you couldn't simply testify that Jehovah had called you into the ministry. Oh no, the first thing that was demanded of the candidate was to produce an unbroken pedigree, tracing his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the great granddaddy of the priesthood. And if a priest wanted to get married, he had to go before the Levites and present a pure Jewish pedigree for his fiance at least five generations back. Let me put this in perspective for you. If the Church of the Nazarene had this practice today, a pastoral candidate would have to produce a pure pedigree going all the way back to the time of Paul. And my fiance, my wife, would have to produce a pure pedigree going all the way back to John Wesley to the 1700s. I've said all that to say this. Preachers are good at that. You know. It was of utmost importance to claim who Jesus claimed to be. It was so important that the 42 generations of Jesus were listed in three sets of 14, you caught that at the end, so that you can memorize them easily. Now you say, Tom, memorize them? Yes. You would memorize them. You see, in the New Testament times, the Jewish Christian would not think about witnessing to one of his countrymen without being able to recite the genealogy of Jesus. In Jesus' time, a man's lineage, if it showed any slightest mixture of foreign blood, he lost the right to be called a Jew. A couple of months ago, I gave the sermon on the woman at the well. Remember that? The Samaritan woman. And remember I told you about the, the background of that Samaritan where she challenged Jesus, says, you, you shouldn't be talking to me. Not only am I a woman, but I'm a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans were those uh, that the Jews had had, when they were carried off into captivity into Babylon, they had intermarried. And the Jews did not consider the Samaritans pure Jews. They were considered half-breeds. Now, on any given street, at any time, you're walking down the street, you saw a Samaritan coming towards you, you identify them by their dress, you would spit on the ground and curse the blood that they came from. They despised anyone who didn't have the pure blood of Judaism. But I want to focus our attention this morning on one thing that's astonishing. It's outrageous. In fact, it's scandalous that in Jesus' very own genealogy, published for the whole world to see, are five women. Women. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. In those days, nobody, I mean nobody, would put women in his official credential statement for the world to see. Like Gentiles and slaves, women had no rights. They had no social status. The devout Jew 
every day at morning prayer would lift his beard or face toward heaven and he would pray that he was thankful that he was not born a Gentile, not born a slave, and not born a woman. But not only did Jesus claim five women, but we're going to take a look at who they were. Now, Mary, we understand. So I'm going to skip Mary, and I'm going to talk about the other four ladies. Let's take a look at them. I should deal with Tamar first, because she's listed first. But I'm hoping I'll run out of time, because the exploits of Tamar are quite remarkable. Some of you shaking your heads. You know the story of Tamar. But how about this one, Rahab? Rahab um, is found in Joshua chapter 2, and I've entitled her Rahab the harlot, but in Joshua chapter 2, she's really identified in modern translations as a prostitute. You know the story. Joshua is getting ready to conquer Canaan. He sends in the spies across the river. He's in, he's in, the, in the city of Jericho, and there he, these two Jewish boys find up, somehow find this house of Rahab. It says she's a prostitute. Now, what are these two fellows doing in this house? I do not know. Now, some modern evangelicals try to say that she was an innkeeper. She had a, some sort of a hotel or an inn there. I don't know. But, but they wind up in this house of Rahab. And they say they, they need some protection because there are spies inside the city. And she says, I will protect you. I will keep you in my home, provided you don't destroy my family or my home. And they say, all right, here's the sign, hind hang this red cord out your window, and when we attack the city, we will not destroy your family or your home. And so that's what took place in Joshua chapter 2. Some have said that that red cord symbolizes the blood of Christ as sort of like a passing over. Some have said that it's more likely that the red cord hanging in the window is the origin of what we call today the red light district. I don't know, but can it be that right here in Jesus' genealogy, Rahab, the mother of the red light district, is right there? What was God thinking? Doesn't he know that we want a Messiah that we could be proud of? Then there's Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, and we find this in the uh, in book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is mentioned in verse 5, and like Rahab, she's not even a Hebrew, but she's not just a Gentile either. She's a Moabite. Now, let me remind you of the story of the origin of the Moabites. And I don't know how to discuss these things because we've got a little mixed congregation here. But if you go back in the Old Testament, you find um, Lot with his daughters. The daughters don't have children. And so they get their father drunk. They have a relationship with their father, and thus is born Moab, the origin of the race known as Moabites, as a result of an incestuous relationship. Ruth comes from that clan. Because you could imagine then, if the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, you could imagine what they think about the Moabites and their origin and how they came about. And, and I know, ladies, I know that in, in mothers, day and other days when we talk about women, we want to lift up the character of Ruth. We use her as an example. I've even preached about Ruth on Mother's Day to lift up her character. But this is the other side of Ruth. Not only is she a Moabite, but she wrote the book on how to trap a husband. 
Some of you are laughing because you know the story. Uh, there was a young man by the name of Boaz, very handsome. She kind of liked Boaz, and he was out in the field harvesting the, the crops. They didn't come back into the village. They stayed out in there, and they would camp out there and harvest the crops. The rule was, the social norm of the day was, if you're caught under a blanket with a woman or a man, uh, come morning, you got to get married because that's you're caught under the blanket of, with a man or woman. Boaz, I mean, uh, Ruth knows this, and so in the middle of the night, this is not how to get a guy, by the way, in the middle of the night, she sneaks up to the feet of Boaz, takes the blanket, and pulls it over herself. The sun rises, Boaz is trapped. He has to marry Ruth. So I, I know we want to lift up the character of Ruth to a, to a great extent, but she did write the book on how to get a man. And here she is. The origin of the Jews when it comes to the purebreds gave them the rights again, even to the Moabites. If they would cross the grounds, they would spit on the ground. The Moabites were so despised that the Old Testament says they were not even allowed in church. Deuteronomy 23.3 reads this, No Ammonite or a Moabite or any of its descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation. Deuteronomy 23.3. So if you, were, if you had someone in your family who was a Moabite, Ten generations back, you could go to church. That means in rough comparison, if the time that Columbus discovered America, if one of your ancestors had been a Moabite at that time, even today, you would not be allowed in church. Imagine that. What was Matthew thinking when he put these women in his genealogy of Jesus? Doesn't God know that we want a Messiah that we could be proud of? Then there's Bathsheba. Most of you know the story of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 2. You know the story. King David is back in his castle. His army's off to war, and he walks out onto the, to the patio, the balcony, and he looks down, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. He desires her. He calls for her. They have a relationship together, and she becomes pregnant. Bathsheba is married to an army sergeant by the name of Uriah. When she becomes pregnant, David doesn't know what to do. What do you do now? So he decides then, he, he calls for Uriah to come in from the front and come back and have a little R&R &R at home with his wife, Bathsheba. Uriah comes home. But he's a good soldier. He decides that, how can I be with my wife when all my comrades are on the front line? So I'm not going to enter my home. I'm going to sleep in the doorway. And that's exactly what he did. David becomes incensed because he thought perhaps then that he could cover the pregnancy by Uriah coming home. But it doesn't work out that way. So now he decides to do the unthinkable. He decides to kill Uriah. Oh, oh not directly now. Not directly, but... He decides then what he'll tell one of his generals that when they're in the, in the, in the heat of combat, Uriah is right up in the front, pull all your troops away from Uriah and he'll be exposed. And that's what happened and Uriah died in combat. Now Bathsheba is a widow. So David takes her into his home. Now you say, what's got to do with Bathsheba? 
The debate here is whether or not Bathsheba was active or passive in this whole thing. I think that Bathsheba knew exactly what she was doing when she was taking a bath. I think she was. And she didn't complain the whole time. It's probably better to be the queen of a king than the wife of a sergeant. And so Bathsheba, I believe, is is a conspirator in this as well. How could Jesus claim such a woman as Bathsheba? But there she is, right in his credential statement. Doesn't God know that we want a Messiah that we could be proud of? Now, I've kind of tiptoed around the story of Rahab and Bathsheba. But when it comes to Tamar in Genesis 38, I've got to be really careful how I bring this about. And... Uh, Of Tamar's escapades, let me just simply say, this is found in Genesis 38. She had had a husband named Ur, E-R. How would you like to have that name? Ur. And the Bible simply says that because of his lifestyle, the Lord took him. The Lord killed him. She had another husband by the name of Onan. He disappeared too. She really wanted a fellow by the name of Shalah, but she, but he was denied to her. So then the scripture says she resorted to prostitution to solve her economic problems. And unlike Paul Harvey, I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You have to read it yourself in Genesis 38. It's not pretty. Well, there you have them. Tamar, Bathsheba, Ruth, and Rahab. Doesn't God know that we want a Messiah that we could be proud of? If you had ransacked the entire Old Testament, you could not find four more unlikely people to appear in the Lord's credential statement. But having there in his genealogy, Jesus is saying, they are mine. So we've come to the so what part of my message. What is God saying to us? God is saying to us that with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that we celebrate at Christmas time, that God entering into history, some old barriers are coming down. The first one, the barrier between male and female is coming down. We read from Galatians earlier where it says, and God has no respecter of anyone, male or female, Greek or Gentile, doesn't matter. By including women in his genealogy, He announced that women are just as precious in his sight as any man ever was. Come on, ladies, you have a chance to say amen. (laughs) God is saying that both men and women are equally important to his purpose. This may seem insignificant to us in our culture today. But back then, it was indeed good news. And even in some part of our worlds today, it is still good news. Second, Jesus is proclaiming Jesus is proclaiming that the barrier between Jew and Gentile is coming down. So valuable to the Jews. God's love, his salvation is by grace, not by race. And I grew up in the south, and I grew up in a very prejudicial family in the south. And uh, I'm amazed how um, Even today, some people think that God loves some people better than other people simply because 
of the color of their skin. It just, it just boggles my mind. Even today, when we go home, I encounter this. But now here in the genealogy, Matthew is claiming, that, and God is claiming, that, that it does not matter. Both are equal into his grace. Everyone comes into his grace as equals. Finally, the barrier between saint and sinner is coming down. This is an announcement that the, the blatant lawbreaker and the self-righteous lawkeeper can only found salvation by grace and grace alone. Salvation only comes by his mercy. So, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me, Tom? It means that my race is no plus or minus as far as God is concerned. It means that my gender is no testimony to my personal worth. It also means that my past failures and my past sins are not final and that my past self-righteous striving cannot buy me salvation. We are talking about that this morning in Sunday school. There is nothing that you can do, brothers and sisters, to cause God to love you more. And there's nothing that you can do that will cause God to love you less. Amen? God's love is eternal. And that, we, we turn to our children and we say, son, daughter, listen, I love you. When you're good, that's great. When you make A's, that's wonderful. And when you disobey, I still love you. doesn't change my love. does not change my love. But somehow we, we go through life as Christians thinking that, that if I do the right things, then God will smile on me. As if I'm standing on top of the world, I turn to God and say, okay, God, you see that? See that? Now bless me because I did something good. Or the opposite of that is when we do something wrong and terrible, we sin against God, that somehow we think that God has abandoned us and God will turn his back on us. It is not true. There's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you less. It is eternal. I think that's one thing, that's one message we can learn from this. If Jesus claimed those four sinfully notorious people as his home, right here in his public credential statement, there is no reason that God will reject you. Not at all. You say, Tom, you, you don't know what kind of person I am. Tom, you really don't know what kind of things I've done in my past. My reply is, and God's reply is, I believe, if God claims a Moabite of an incestuous clan, if he claims Rahab of the red light district, if he claims Bathsheba, the heartless adulteress, if he claims Tamar, there is not one shred of evidence that he will ever reject you. You see, this is the one reason why it's all in your Bible. Jesus is announcing to you that all of your broken memories, all the wrong decisions that you, you cannot undo, all the heartaches, in short, all the sins of the past can be put under the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ and you can be a child of the King. And he wants to adopt you. There is grace for all of us. And he will say what he said of these women. You are mine. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what race you're from. Doesn't matter your conduct. I love you and I claim you. We can come to him just as we are and he will set us free. 
I'm going to close on a poem that I discovered by Nancy Spiegelberg and expressed it in one of the lines of a poem. Very simple. Let me read it to you. Lord, I crawled across the barrenness of my life to you with my empty cup, uncertain and asking any small drop of refreshment. Lord, if I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. So often we think, Lord, I'm just asking for one small thing, and I'm not even sure if you're going to give that to me. But God's grace, God's living water will pour out on us if we come to him with a bucket. His grace and his mercy is that great. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come forward now. Maybe this morning you're in a point in your life where you're just simply saying, Tom, I, I don't know where I stand before the Lord. I'm, I'm not sure. I've always thought that somehow God will always reject me and never forgive me. I hope today you'll learn that God's love, His mercy is deep. As we sang, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let's pray together. Father, today we just come before you asking again that you will pour out your love your grace, your mercy upon us. Sometimes, Lord, we think it's just that, that small thing that we're asking for, but you're standing right there ready to, to outpour your Holy Spirit and love upon us. Help us to understand that it doesn't matter who we are, the color of our skin, our gender, Lord, or what we have done, you will love us. And that's what the season's all about, the greatest love of all. So, Lord, I ask that you'll, in this moment, speak to us. In your name, amen.